0: Welcome back to All The Small Things with me, Venetia LaManna. It has been a really long time and I'm so thrilled to be back with a brand new season. Before we dive into today's conversation, here's a quick message. This episode is kindly sponsored by Lumi, who you might know I'm a huge fan of. Lumi is a Cambridge-based light therapy brand on a mission to help people reconnect with their natural rhythms for best ever sleep, mood and energy levels. They specialise in SAD and wake-up lights that help improve sleep, mood and energy, making it easier for people to get through the darker autumn-winter months when daylight is limited. I started using their body clock, which is similar to an alarm clock without the alarm about five years ago now, and I've never looked back. I go to sleep with the sounds of rain and a gentle sunset and no longer need to have my phone in the bedroom to sound the alarm into my day. It's a great Offline 48 hack. I now avoid the temptation to look at my phone first thing and instead I wake up with a gradual light that simulates a summertime sunrise. It has drastically improved my sleep pattern and mood and helps me feel more ready to get up and go during the dark winter months. I also use the Vitamin L light therapy lamp during the winter, it's actually on my desk as I record this right now. It's my go-to productivity companion and helps soothe my winter blues. It's also lightweight and portable to carry with me when I'm on the go both of these products are brilliant for brightening up a gloomy January when so many of us in the Northern Hemisphere struggle with low mood and winter blues. I have an exclusive 20% off discount code for all the small things listeners valid for a limited time only. Just head to lumi.com and use code VEN20 at checkout. That's l-u-m-i-e.com and code VEN20. Thanks very much to Lumi. It's my pleasure to be kick-starting the season with Willow Defabar. Willow is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Atmos, which is a biannual magazine focused on the exploration of climate and culture. It's one of my favourite publications, social media channels and newsletters to learn about nature, social justice, indigenous rights, trans justice and much more. The words, the imagery, it's all absolutely stunning and so thought-provoking and I know my listeners will love it. Willow writes a weekly newsletter called The Overview which offers a holistic look at life on earth through the lens of deep ecology. Her work has been featured in V Magazine, Vogue, USID, The Guardian, Them and the BBC to name just a few. Spending time with Willow via Zoom was a true blessing. She is so thoughtful, considered and kind and I really wanted to kickstart this season with Willow because her ethos and outlook is something I want to carry through for the entirety of this season. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Willow Defaba on all the small things. Willow, I am so thrilled to have you on all the small things today and I would love to start as we always do. Do you have any rituals or habits that you like to practice in the morning to help you feel grounded ahead of getting your day started?
1: Thank you so much for having me and for starting off with such an important question. I often find that the first foot that we put forward in the morning can really determine the rest of our days and... For me, one of my absolute favorite practices is sitting for tea in the morning. So I have a little tea set up in my room and it kind of looks like pouring cup after cup and sitting in meditation. And the reason why it speaks to me so much right now is it's a reminder that even though I live in Brooklyn, even though I live in a big city, it's still possible always to connect with nature. And I sit and I reflect on... The leaves of the tea, the water it comes in, the heat of the water, you know, the smell of incense, the breeze coming through my window, and it just reminds me that that connection is always possible and it's always present. I think it also speaks to me in this moment because I was never really that good at just like emptying my mind, but I think just focusing on something, the sensations and the experience of it just feels so grounding to me.
0: That sounds very mindful and very calming. Are you a a herbal tea drinker or do you prefer a caffeine hit in the morning?
1: (laughs) It's usually when I'm sitting for tea, it's like a red tea or a black tea. So there is some caffeine in it, but it doesn't push me over the edge. I cannot have coffee. I'm not a coffee girl.
0: So you are not the classic New Yorker in that that regard. No, I know. (laughs)
1: I always feel terrible admitting it, but I think New York has enough anxiety as (laughs) as it is. And when I add like coffee to the mix, I'm just like, no, I can't do it. Too much. It's too much.
0: Um, So you grew up in Michigan and went to university there. How did your time growing up in Michigan shape you as a person? I think this would be really good for our listeners to hear as they get more of a sense of who you are.
1: Yeah. You know, growing up in Michigan, first and foremost, taught me to love nature. I think there's so much beautiful nature in the Midwest. Just the upstate portions of Michigan are so incredible, particularly the seasons. We have such beautiful falls and springs there. And it really just taught me to have such an appreciation for how much of a constant change is in the natural world and in our lives. There's a beautiful sense of familiarity that comes with seasonal living as you get older. I feel like I'm at the point in my life now where I'm like, oh, I, I know what fall is about. I know that this is the time for me to be shedding and starting to clear out and release some of the loose ends in my life and prepare to hunker down for winter, I suppose. And I think growing up with that model just had such a huge impact on me.
0: I am someone who really struggles going into winter. All I can see is like cold and dark ahead of me. Do you have any tips for us listeners who really thrive in the hotter, warmer months?
1: You know, I think we have this very modern idea that we're supposed to be happy all the time, probably to do with social media and us seeing everyone living these picture perfect lives. And I just don't think that that's really the case. I don't think that we're built to be happy all the time. And I think when you actually sort of surrender that notion, and you open yourself up to the idea that yeah there's a time and a place for me to feel heavier and to feel like I just can't see as many people. and I just need to rest and I need to focus on cooking stews and lighting candles and and reading. And so much of our suffering comes from that struggle with surrender, right? Of just wanting things to be in our experience. And I want to be happy. I want to go out and enjoy the warmth. And of course, I want all of those things. But I think when we can actually, when we can let go of our idea of how we want things to look and accept that there is a time and a place for this, it stops feeling so daunting, I think. At least that's been my experience of it.
0: So I'd love to hear what drew you to making a career out of writing initially and how you went about following that passion and perhaps, you know, how long writing has been with you as a person.
1: When I was like, 12 years old I wrote on a post-it note that I was going to grow up and become a writer and I put it in a box and I was home last year and I found that post-it note to be honest I don't think there was anything else I could have been I love writing because it feels like weaving like I love watching the words on the page and figuring out the right way to thread them together it's such magic to me it's just something that never ever gets old and Writing is how I process the world. And I know that if I'm carrying so much with me and I if I am feeling really heavy or I cloudy and I don't know what's going on with me, writing is always the thing that helps me find clarity. You know, I think it took me a long time to figure out what it was that I wanted to write about in my career. When I first moved to New York, I was mostly at culture and fashion and art publications. And that served me. And I learned so much during that time in my life about writing and about editing and storytelling and then i think when the opportunity for atmos came along the climate and culture publication that i co-founded it just felt like suddenly i could take all of these tools and apply it to what had always been my lifelong love which was nature and specifically looking at what we can learn about ourselves through nature and what we can learn about nature through ourselves and those connections and illuminating those connections are really what lights me up so much in terms of, in terms of writing.
0: I'm quite in awe of how you put words together. I find your words really kind of enrapturing and you're so talented. Let's talk about your kind of career a little bit more. You worked in the publishing industry at magazines such as V Magazine and L'Officiel. This must have given you a lot of insight into the industry as a whole. In what ways did you feel the industry has been progressive regarding climate change? And in what areas did you feel it could have been improving?
1: Yeah, you know, I was really at a breaking point. It was around 2017, 2018, and I really thought that I was ready to leave publishing behind forever. And part of that was the unsustainable pace of publishing itself. There's just such a cadence to it that is so intense, and the media cycle right now, it's just a constant churning out of content. I think that leads people to burn out so quickly. But then also, you know, a number of the magazines I worked at that you mentioned were also primarily fashion magazines and witnessing not just the amount of volume of clothing being produced in the industry, but also the mindset that was being created. I love the idea of championing and focusing on individuality and fashion as a way to express individuality and our own unique sense of self. I think that's what draws so many of us to to fashion and the visual arts. But it's tough because it also creates this mindset of what's cool. Like so many things can be traced back to this very simple, like high school kind of mindset, right? Of just like, oh, this is cool. And therefore I need to be like this, or I want to have things that will make me like this. I mean, that's really what drives, especially the trend side of the fashion industry. And it's a bottomless pit. I think I just saw so much of that happening and I didn't want to be part of it anymore. I think what has been really gratifying about Atmos and this journey of starting this publication, which really was an experiment in terms of, okay, well, how can we use creative storytelling, the type of storytelling that I witnessed at some of these other publications and put it towards climate storytelling. And I was surprised because so many people who I had worked with or I had looked up to within fashion and sort of the creative industry really wanted to do the same. They were feeling a very similar notion of things have to change and I need to figure out how to use my specific skills to create and enable that change, but I just don't know how. And that's really how the magazine was born. But obviously the industry hasn't changed enough. You know, the last fashion month cycle, I think a lot of people felt really disheartened because it felt a lot like business as usual or as it was before lockdown before the pandemic before people really had this opportunity to question what it is that they were creating and the cycles that they were part of so I think it has a lot more it needs to change.
0: I think um, for me one of the strangest things about watching for example the micro mini skirt come back into fashion recently is this feeling of, oh my goodness, I remember when I was 13 or 14 and how important it was for me to have the shortest skirt in the world because it signified this whole level of coolness. And I was at that peak teenage point in my life where the clothes that I wore were absolutely everything. And I think one of the reasons why I find it haunting seeing this return of trend cycle is because I'm like, I remember how insecure that young person was. And like, I think you've raised something really, really important. You know, are we looking to take new items on because they make us feel cool or we think we're going to be another person or is it because we genuinely love them?
1: Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the word insecurity. There's few things that I think are inherently good or bad and fashion is one of them that I don't think falls in that binary. But I think fashion at its worst is something that does prey on insecurity, right? If you don't have this, then you are not cool enough. You're not a woman enough. You're not, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's hard, especially with the rise of TikTok. These trends come up so quickly and then they're gone. It creates a hunger always for what's new and what's different. And that is so harmful from a sustainability perspective because then we're losing interest in what's old and worn and loved and beautiful and storied.
0: I completely agree with you. So let's talk a little bit more about Atmos. I am a huge fan. And there is something about the pace of the magazine, which you referenced earlier in our conversation, things that deserve to be read at a time where we have more time, we can slow down, we can take them in. Tell me about what it's been like working on Atmos. What informs the way you plan each issue? And what are kind of some of your goals with the publication?
1: Well, thank you so much. First of all, I really appreciate you identifying the sort of slow aspect to it, because I think the era of magazines as a news source, you know, as something that you consume every month, I think that era has passed because people get their news in much more immediate formats. And so what we were really interested in is a magazine that's more of a book in the sense that it presents you a series of related stories and perspectives that are worth contemplating. Every single issue begins with a theme and then we look at and explore how the theme can be refracted in so many different lights. And some of that comes from our incredible contributors, you know, we'll share our theme with them and they'll pitch story ideas. Some of it comes from me and my team, like, Oh, we know we want to interpret the theme in this sense. And, you know, the theme is always rooted in what's happening. Our current issue that just launched is Prism. And the inspiration for the issue was All of the binaries that are so deeply ingrained within our culture and cultural thinking, especially related to cancel culture and just how many issues we see as black and white and right and wrong. And our world is so much more nuanced and multidimensional than that. We really wanted to explore through this theme what it means to look at the world through a more prismatic perspective. And part of that is like, how do we hold all of it? How do we hold the fact that there is so much suffering in our world with the fact that there's also so much beauty and feels like that's just like the massive task of our human existence is to hold all of it, you know? So every issue in that sense is a question. And that was like the question that really started that issue. And then it was about different writers and photographers and creatives exploring that question through their own different mediums. Some of that was reporting, some of that was poetry, some of that was, you know, art photography, some of it was documentary. That's really my hope with every issue is that we can take a topic that hopefully feels like it is in the cultural zeitgeist and approach it from as many different angles as possible to give people as much to think about and to think about it slowly and for each magazine to not be something that you just consume and then set aside, but something that you hold on to. And one of my favorite things is like, I'll get messages from contributors or people who've received the issue and they'll say, I just picked off this issue from last year and this story just found me at totally the right time. And, you know, there, there is this sort of timelessness to it, I hope. And so, yeah, I I hope that it can bring a sense of slowness back to the publishing world,
0: as a reader, it's a much more enjoyable process to sit down and read something where you don't feel like you need to keep up with it and you need to buy stuff from it. Like to be able to read something you just think, oh, like actually it'd be better for me to go and sit by a tree today than it would be to buy something is really, mm-hmm. really wonderful.
1: <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that.
0: Thank you. What you said in your previous answer made me think about the importance of joy and how We are living in very trying times for a plethora of reasons. And how I think a lot of us can feel if we're privileged enough to be able to experience joy, we can carry some guilt with that. I would love to hear how important it is to you to make time for your own joy and what your advice would be to folks who are listening and thinking, you know, I know it's important for me to do all this gorgeous stuff that makes me feel joyful but I don't feel like I can or I feel like nervous to share that on social media or whatever it is what would be your advice with that
1: I love that question especially because I think it really relates to sustainability more than anything else and I'm a big believer that the way we do one thing is the way we do everything if our approach to activism and organizing and creating change is in itself unsustainable then how can we hope to actually create sustainability through what we're doing joy is what sustains us as human beings because otherwise what are we fighting for what are we trying to create if not a world where there is joy and i think for me i had a big light bulb moment around this probably last year where it just dawned on me that there's never going to be a moment where we can just like take our gloves off and say, we've done it. We've created all the change that we need to make. We've saved the planet. That moment's not going to come. And you can look at that as despairing, or you can look at it as liberating. Because when you understand something is a marathon or a relay race instead of a sprint, I can't believe I'm making a sports analogy. Um, (laughs) You know, it just changes how you approach it. And for me, I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be doing this work for the rest of my life, then how am I also going to create a life that is sustainable and joyful? That has helped me so much in terms of carving boundaries for myself because I'm like, you know what? In order to keep doing this, I'm going to have to also do this. And I think what you pointed to, the feeling of like guilt, I think shame is the most insidious thing. Every single person on this planet deserves to experience joy and no one should feel ashamed for it. And I think the people who do feel ashamed for feeling joy are often (laughs) the ones who should be feeling it the least, right? They're the ones who like are devoting so much of their time and efforts towards creating change. And so create that space for yourself because you're only going to hurt the movement in the long run if you deprive yourself of it. Then you're just depriving yourself of longevity.
0: I love that answer so much. you have spoken and interviewed so many different kinds of people who are also in the climate movement in kind of very, very different ways. And you've explained in this conversation how you have used your love and skill of writing to kind of be the thing that helps you create or one of the things that helps you create change and positive change. If someone's listening to this and thinking, you know, I I really feel like I want to do more and I want to get more involved with organizing and activism what would be your advice to them how do you think we can find our purpose as an activist for positive change
1: i think it's so inseparable from the question and conversation around joy because i think our passion is our purpose and i think that what sparks joy in you that doesn't spark joy in me that should be such an indication for what you should start questioning and exploring Whenever I feel lost or confused, I always look back to nature and I always look to the sort of lessons we can glean from her. And when you look at an ecosystem, it is comprised of so many different creatures and things that are all serving a specific function and are so different from each other. And I think the harmful thing is like people look outward for that type of validation within like cultural spaces, right? People might say like, oh, I need to be a writer. Like, what if I'm not a writer? Like, what if I can't do that? Does that mean I can't contribute to the movement? As opposed to looking in and saying, well, what is my passion? And how can I use that towards this movement? Because we don't need 100 writers. We don't need 100 activists. We need all of these different people who can apply their own unique skills and more importantly, their passions to this cause. Because I think... Again, that's what sustains it. If you're doing something just because you feel like you should or because someone else has like laid out that path for you, I don't know how much longevity there is in that. You know, of course, this is like impossible to disentangle from privilege because not everyone is able to pursue their passions. But I think those who are in a position to be asking themselves the question, how can I help? I think that's the best place to start.
0: Adore that answer. I read an interview with you with the Reformation last year, um, you talked about the issues with gatekeeping in the climate change movement. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to the question of perfect and imperfect activism. You know, not every single person in my life would identify as an environmentalist or a climate activist. And I think what often keeps people out is feeling like if they are not a perfect environmentalist or a perfect activist, then they can't talk about these issues or they can't be a part of the movement. And I just think that's so harmful. You know, the movement has felt so insular for such a long time because we're so, you know, oh, you're not a vegan? You can't really be part of this movement because that means you don't care about this issue. And the reality is I've become very wary of, one-size-fits-all solutions because everyone's in a different position. Not everyone is going to be able to be a vegan. I'm just pulling this out as an example, you know, for health reasons or financial reasons. And to bring it back to fashion, there's sort of this like, oh, well, you can't support fast fashion. You have to support companies that are really investing in artisan-made or slow fashion and sustainable practices. Yes, if you have the financial means to support those brands, a thousand percent. Not everyone is going to have those resources. And that's where there's other opportunities or secondhand, et cetera. And I think the less we can say, this is what you have to do. And the more we can say like, here is a list of potential options that could work for you. The more the movement starts to feel inclusive and it comes back to shame in a lot of ways. I think like the approach of a lot of activism before the last few years has been to shame people into action. And there are so many psychological studies that show that shame actually has the averse effect. It paralyzes people. It forces them into inaction because when we're in a place of shame, we shut down and we feel like we can't grow. The psychologist Brené Brown has like pretty much dedicated her whole life to this research. And when you can free people from that sort of prison of shame that's where actual growth and change can happen.
0: I think, I don't know about you, I think things have changed over the past couple of years since we've started talking more about systems of oppression and how, you know, the stat that everyone always pulls out, 71% of greenhouse gases are from the top 100 most polluting companies. I think that rhetoric has really helped shift the dial, which I love to see. If you have the privilege to engage in you know, ethical consumption, please be my guest. That's wonderful. I love this for you. I actually there are so many other important ways you can show up, and they look like all of these different things. And then suddenly you have space for everyone to engage in a small way, in a big way. And some of those ways are actually moving us further away from capitalist consumption. Coming to the slow fashion movement isn't just about supporting an ethical brand or a luxury so-called sustainable brand. It's about learning about garment maker rights, spreading that information as widely as possible, um, signing a petition, protesting, watching a documentary with your friend, hosting a swap shop. Like there are just so many other ways to get involved. Do you feel like you've seen the, the dial shift and you've seen things become less about being a perfect environmentalist and more about like, right, let's get everyone on board?
1: I think so. I think the movement has just grown so much in recent years. And I do think that that's a really big part of it. And I think if there's anything that the last few years have brought to the forefront, it's how intersectional all of these different crises are. And so when you really embrace intersectionality, you almost have to become a part of more than just the maybe original cause that sort of brought you into activist work. You know, if you're extremely passionate about black lives matter and racial justice you and then you start to understand how environmental racism is so connected to the climate crisis that brings in the climate element into your activism and you know what i love so much about the work that you do is that you do have that 360 approach right where it's not just looking at the textiles or the fashion policies but also looking at labor rights and you know you can't disentangle any of these things And that's what it means to have more of a holistic perspective. And I think for better or for worse, and mostly I say for better, I think that holistic worldview has really shaped how we go about organizing. I said for better or for worse, because I think that really relates back to what we were talking about of like how it can feel hard sometimes to hold, right? Because to like understand how connected all of these crises are is to be tapped into all of these different crises and sometimes it's like it feels so overwhelming but then when you also remember they're kind of all the same it maybe starts to feel a little bit less
0: I have definitely found those feelings of overwhelm but like you say it's the same fight and that is really really freeing I'm really happy you brought up intersectionality because that is something that I wanted to speak with you about it's so key to understanding The planet's future better and of course the past as well. Can you tell me a little bit about how being trans influences your approach? I particularly loved a phrase that you used in an interview with Youth to the People where you talked about the importance of transcending duality and transcending binary thinking.
1: Yeah, I think that also relates back to the sort of conversation around, well, what can I do? You know, there's this whole binary that exists between individualism and collectivism. And, you know, that 71% statistic, right? I love when that comes up because, yeah, that changed the narrative and it's so important. And also it's where we have to be wary of binary thinking because like at the same time also we do have individual impacts and like, you know, the very specific plastic cup that I accidentally buy could end up harming a very specific creature. So I think always holding both sides and sort of transcending dualistic thinking is really important. And going back to the individual versus collective piece, there's a huge difference between individuality and individualism. Individualism is only focusing on the self, right? It's like very myopic thinking. And that's really the problem of capitalism. But that's different from individuality. Being an individual, being a unique creature on this planet, there's nothing inherently bad about that. Individuality says, well, what can I learn about or offer from my unique self and my unique gifts towards this collective cause? And that's where we start to break down the binary of individuality versus collectivism. But all of that is to say, I don't know how to approach my environmental work without also thinking about it through the lens of my identity as a trans woman, because being trans has taught me so much about transformation. And what is activist work, if not the work of transforming our world? If anything, it gives me this great sense of the dirty word in activism, hope, because I know that change is possible. I have seen change, I have lived change personally in my life. And when you experience that kind of metamorphosis, it changes your worldview and your perspective towards everything can change. Everything is changed. We have this idea that things are, are static and because they've always been this way, they always have to be this way. And that is the most destructive mindset, I think, to have. Because the reality is, everything will change. Uh, someone recently said to me, transition is inevitable, justice is not. So if we know things are going to change, then it becomes about, well, how can we make sure that the change and the transformation will be as just and intersectional as as possible? But yeah, that specific quote that you mentioned, I think for me, you know, even though I do, at this stage in my life, identify as as a woman, I always come back to in my mind that what being trans is means something so different to every single trans person. But for me, it's always trans is in transcending. And that's transcending binaries. And it's transcending ideas of what womanhood looks like. It transcends ideas of of categories, And I think it's something that really has changed my life a lot in the last few years is whenever we're presented with sort of two strict options that look only one particular way. What does it mean to question that? That's sort of what that phrase kind of means to me is always asking what the third option is
0: if one thing adult life has taught me it's to question everything because I feel like I've been unlearning basically everything I learned in the first like 18 to 20 years of my life and I love that it kind of links back to your issue the prism issue it's like let's not be so binary in our thinking let's think about all of that gray area which is just so important
1: yeah I think the way my being trans has informed my environmentalism is that transition more than anything, like even more than transformation, I've started to just see it as, as a kind of healing, right? It's like going back to who I was before I was taught to be anything else and all of the things that were cast upon me. And like, you know, as much as there are some things about transition that are so unique to being trans, I think a lot of it actually isn't because I think that's just our journey as Human beings, just as you were saying, is like we grow up and we learn how to separate what is really us versus all of the things that we were taught to learn. And we go back to the truth of who and what exists underneath. You know, that's what we really need to be doing.
0: For me, it's like that kind of cool childhood joy and like thinking back to what that little five-year-old what brought her joy now especially as I think I'm kind of living a slower pace of life these days all the stuff that I adore now like going outside obsessing over in my case cows because I live near cows five-year-old me would have been all over that (laughs) so it's a really interesting practice I think like coming back to like this yeah childhood sense of joy and like how we kind of just add layers of social conditioning on top of that Spirituality is an important part of your existence. Can you tell me how this affects your day to day?
1: You know, I honestly haven't really talked about this a lot because I'm still working out a lot of my feelings about it. But, you know, in sort of the in between fashion publishing and Atmos time, I spent a lot of time in the wellness world and. I really felt like it unlocked so many things for me, like just seeing the world, like, oh, I've always been the spiritual person. Now I have the language to talk about it and I can talk about it with other people. And it was really freeing in a lot of senses. But I think that what I've come to understand now is that for me at this point in my life, spirituality isn't a thing that I chase or a group of people to be a part of or a practice or a discipline or like a state. It's just... The world. And I think we're seeing, especially with indigenous wisdom, becoming thankfully more and more centralized in climate conversations and environmental conversations. We're starting to see a breakdown of the Western binary of science and spirituality. To me, I learn about an ecosystem or a creature or a natural process. And I'm just like, that is so incredible. Like that is so spiritual. Science is so spiritual to me. And we have all these words that are so taboo, you know, like magic. Magic is just like a word for energy, right? And then we have like science, which just studies how energy moves through our world. But for some reason, we can't call that magic. I think I'm just always interested in questioning that. More and more, the older I get, spirituality is not this like outlook that I have. It's not some part of me. It's just, it's everything, in a lot of ways the western wellness world has sort of created this binary of like oh there's sort of like the spiritual world that like if you're fit enough or if you if you meditate enough then you can be spiritual and you can be enlightened and it's like i don't know i think spirituality is getting more into the world not getting more detached from it if that makes sense
0: definitely definitely um before we go to our quick fire round i have quite a big question for you How does the future of our planet look to you? If you could imagine it, if you could reimagine it, how would you like to see things change? And how do you hope to see things change over the next years, decades, or do you not look that far ahead? Are you kind of very focused on the present?
1: You know, I I will say that I, I do try to stay as present as I can, because I think the future can be quite scary to think about. Ultimately, our notions or our ideas of the future are not real. Their anxieties and their projections and I think that the science is telling us what the future will look like if we don't act now. But I think staying focused here in this present moment and what we can do now is the best sort of coping mechanism I have found because I think when we get lost in the anxiety of the future, we become much more ineffective in the present. I have a lot of curiosity about the future and, you know, is there some magical just version of capitalism that we will be able to find or is that entire system going to need to be rerouted? I don't know, but I think staying curious is the most important thing and not necessarily being fixated on this is the one path or one solution. I think we have to just have a mindset of curiosity and be open.
0: I love that answer so much. Honestly, couldn't love it more. I would love to do a quick fire round with you. I'm very conscious that these are either or questions and you are <laughs> never either or. So I apologies in advance. So this is something that I do on every episode. So here we go. Quick fire with Willow. Wake up early or have a lie in? Wake up early. Black tea or red tea? Red tea. In the trees or by the sea?
1: In the trees, for sure.
0: TikTok or Instagram? Instagram fiction or non-fiction fiction Fiction. podcasts or tv series
1: don't hate me but tv series
0: (laughs) sunrise or sunset sunset and finally routine or spontaneity
1: routine but room for both
0: finally the question I ask all my guests what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved
1: surrender to bring this conversation full circle I think I'm always trying to learn how to hold things a little bit less tightly. And I don't know if there's ever going to be one moment where I can say I've figured out how to do that. But it is something that I hope I continue to work toward all my life.
0: That is so beautiful. Willow, I'm so grateful. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you so much for your time.
1: You too. I could have talked for another hour
0: thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please do share it. You can either send the link directly to a friend, put it on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia Manor, and even better would be to leave a five-star review on iTunes. All of these things really help get the word of the show out there. Right, I will be back same time, same place next week. In the meantime, I hope you have the best possible day. See you soon.